This is White Atlantic Weird, the Irish Fortean podcast that's critical but not cynical. I'm Kean, and I'm coming to you from the Cabin in the Woods, which used to be located somewhere in West Cork, but now, thanks to mystical doings with time and space, as you'll know from recent episodes, has been somehow mystically transported to the sunny southeast of the country, somewhere in that region, and that's as specific as I'm going to be. It's not really sunny either. I'm a little bit jealous of my friends in the UK and other places where they're getting fairly crazy temperatures at the moment. Not a good thing, I suppose, long term, but um, I wouldn't mind a little bit of it here. I suppose we're, we're getting a nice warm evening um, in early summer, so I'm happy enough to be sitting outside here on the porch on the front of the cabin with a beer, watching the sun go down and reading from none other than... Percy Fawcett's Exploration Fawcett, because this is episode three of our Fawcett-a-thon, and this is episode two of me making my way through his 1953 book-slash-memoir-slash-stitch-up-by-his-son, uh, Brian Fawcett. So, uh, that's that's what it is, that's what this is. Uh, back into the explorer's life and all that stuff. Uh, my beer for the episode is an old favourite, it is Bunderbar IPA. That's from Rascal's Brewing. It's a baby can, but it is a six percenter. So I'll be going slowly on that one as I make my way through Exploration Fawcett yet again. I'm also going to go back on my pledge last episode not to turn this into an audiobook and end up reading huge chunks of the book. I think I probably will, just based on what it's about. And we're, we're going to get into Fawcett's ideas about history and about race and about you know, his, his beliefs about this lost city and what it really meant. And I want to get into as much detail as I can about what the man himself believed. So out of necessity, there will be, I think, large chunks of reading from the book. However, the man himself is long dead, so I'm not so worried about... Or, or is he? Or is he? Maybe he's alive somewhere and he made it to the Hollow Earth and, you know, he's watching us somehow from within with flying saucers or something. But I think he's probably not alive, so... I think this is going to be absolutely fine. Uh, just looking around at the forest, there is no longer any bluebells. It's kind of past that time. There's no longer any lords and ladies, which is another favourite of mine. However, I have recently heard a woodpecker, which is exciting because, you know, they're not as rare as they used to be. They, they were There were almost none or none in Ireland for decades, and they've been coming back since, I suppose, 2005 or 10, maybe. And they've been sighted in almost every county now. So it's not that unusual, but still, they're, they're thin on the ground further south where I'm from, so it's not common for me to hear them or see evidence of them when I'm out and about, so it's still exciting for me, still a novelty. Something I associate with more, more so with my time living in the UK than being here, so that's cool. Anyway, as always, you can reach out and get in touch over online on Twitter. I'm at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And I'm not going to do my front loading as I usually do because this kind of episode where I'm reading from books and stuff and, and researching, they take me so long to make now that all that stuff is like horrifically dated by the time I get done with the episode. So I'm going to try doing it at the end, see how it feels. You can write in, let me know if you prefer it that way. I know a lot of people prefer a show that just gets to the point. So we'll try it. We'll see how it feels. You can let me know what you think. So that means that after the intro, you will have me going straight into uh, the remaining part of Exploration Fawcett with very little messing around. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And 
Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. All right, welcome back. So when we last talked about Fawcett, we talked about his various cryptozoological connections uh, in particular we talked about a, a group either a group of people or a group of beings depending on your take called the maracoxes as you recall my interpretation of this one is that Fawcett is actually just using terms like ape men to describe them in in a figurative way and uh, lest we forget a highly racist way and that he's just using this phrase to describe groups of people because he's obsessed with ranking different kinds of humans in terms of how primitive he thinks they are and of course at this time and amongst people who thought this way you know, the whole world was divided up into different kind of groups of people and they were on a sliding scale going right back into, you know, old-fashioned ideas about missing links and that sort of thing. So this kind of language used to describe groups of indigenous people, unfortunately, was fairly common when you read writing from this time. And so that that's kind of where I get my interpretation from. Your mileage may vary, as they used to say online. And you will see all over the internet people presuming that this was in fact Fawcett reporting on uh, an encounter with some sort of Bigfoot type beings. That's often how it's uh, interpreted, but uh, that's not how I feel about it. Anyway, we, we find out when he leaves this area and he goes back to a group of people he calls the Maxubis. The Maxubis tell him that the Maracoxes uh, number about 1,500. That's the, the ape-like cannibal tribe, so to speak and that they tend to do, they're covered in hair, they tend to put their victims on a spit and barbecue them over a fire and pick pieces off to eat and other uh, fearsome, scary things. Uh, fairly common, really, if you read either <laughs> supposed real uh, exploration at the time, but also the kind of pulp fiction that was in science fiction newspapers or uh, magazines and stuff at the same time as well. He then talks about Rio de Janeiro, which is a place that he really likes, and he talks a little bit about his funding, or rather the lack of his funding. And he says that it, there's a certain amount of interest uh, f towards his work back in England, but financial support isn't isn't easy for him to get at this point. And this is kind of circa 1914. And he once again has another another classic faucet rant about how all the money is going for uh, Antarctic expeditions. He thinks that maybe his own objectives are too romantic for hard-headed conservatives. And then he has a good old classic rant about how the men of science poo-pooed uh, Pompeii and Troy and all of that sort of thing. And then he, he kind of bigs on his own credentials as a, a founder medalist of the of the Royal Geographical Society. Um, and basically kind of your, your standard crank contrarian stuff, which he's he's leaning into more and more at this point in his career. Interestingly, he, he skips over the First World War almost completely. So he get, gets to kind of like the 1914 and then all the way through to 1918 happens pretty much off the page, uh, which is interesting. Now, back, if you go back to the first episode, we talked a little bit about Fawcett's doings during the war, which we learned about from David Grant's book, who is, is more interested in that period. But in this, this book isn't just entirely about the the expeditions and about the lost cities so he's not interested in talking about that he does however say an interesting thing which is he he says i came out of the war convinced that as a world power britain was on the wane and i saw europe only as a place to avoid and he talks about disillusionment 
and this should this should remind uh, you know 14 scholars of things that many other people were saying at about the same time i suppose most famously people like arthur conan doyle of course though his spiritualism really begins much earlier but he leans into it most heavily i suppose in the post 1918 period and people are talking more openly about this there's definitely a resurgence of it in europe um and yeah disillusionment the idea that european society that you know all the optimism of the victorian period was shattered and people start looking for answers in other places because it is clear that a lot of the old systems you know led to having led to such a disaster maybe they're they're not things that one can put their faith into anymore and he says from under the clouds of post-war depression i looked towards the americas and saw in them the only hope of our civilization north america had already taken a place at the head of our western nations but to me the focus was on the Latin American republics, which, stimulated by inflated wartime markets, were beginning to forge ahead. I find this very interesting. So he, I think he quite correctly puts his finger on the pulse that Britain is about to become a power on the wane. And this, this is quite early to be making this point. Britain actually, at, by the end of the First World War, I think has its most, the most territory it ever attains. Uh, but in terms of finances and what, what it cost them to to come out as a victor in the war, you know, I, I think the writing and, and, and things like the, the Irish 1916 Rising, which of course happens in the middle of the war, is, is a pretty important signifier, as is the Home Rule movement, which is which is powerful during this time. Um, these are these are signifiers that things the old order is changing and the British Empire is is, a, is about to be on the wane. And this is more clear, obviously, after the Second World War than the first. But it's interesting to see Fawcett um, pointing that out this early, at least to, to me, who being not a historian. Um, also interesting to me is that he looks across the Atlantic, but he doesn't look to North America. He looks to South America and his attitude towards South American countries, while paternalistic is very warm and feels very genuine he thinks that they're about to get onto their feet and take their place on the world stage he has a lot of hope and a lot of optimism for them and that's that's not just i don't think this is cynical um if i'm reading him correctly i don't think this is just he's placed his hopes in the amazon for the lost city which you know he believes will be his ultimate destiny and his ultimate vindication it, that is true but also he talks about the the mass countries he talks about the south american republics and he talks about his hopes for them and, and as they mature and as they become he has these hopes that they will become as kind of ingrained as nations as the european countries and there's a certain amount of dignity and respect that he is granting to them which you don't always see in writing of this time so having spent the war as we know fantasizing about getting back to the amazon and dreaming about finding this lost city and i, I think really doubling down on the idea that there will be something magical and mystical there and that this will elevate you know not only him personally but it will elevate you know maybe even humanity from all of the the disappointment and the disillusionment of the war uh, he he starts he gets on an expedition back after the war and immediately starts trying to find like very remote areas where you know he might find evidence of of things archaeological sites that have been missed by everybody else and he's disappointed and i find this very interesting he's disappointed by the fact that nowhere he goes is particularly bereft of people and and even the supposedly most remote places uh have people pretty much living always over the horizon this is how he puts it i was by this time exasperated at finding trails and settlements where absolutely wild country was expected so ignorant were the moradores of everything beyond the confines of their own plantations that in all sincerity 
they claimed to be the most remotely situated. The awful mystery of the Rio de Oro burst like a bubble. True, the settlements and homesteads were separated by considerable distances. These people, like the frontiersmen of the United States, had pushed steadily into the wilds, each carving out a clearing for himself which became his whole world, but ignorant of the fact that others were doing the same thing on either side of him. Mention of neighbouring plantations always surprised them. They imagined themselves to be completely isolated. And then we get this recurring motif in, in these chapters where Fawcett, you know, rocks up at a plantation and the, the owner tells him, oh yeah, I'm the, I'm the last man here, I'm the last man out, there's nothing beyond me, it's, it's you know, primeval forest. And then when he travels over the, the next hill, he finds there's another plantation and these guys just have no idea that they're all there. We get a little glimpse at this point of Fawcett's kind of maybe spiritualist or, or, or paranormal beliefs because he has a, a kind of a vision where he's traveling and he thinks he sees a couple of indigenous people and a hut up on top of a ridge and he has to climb up towards uh, through some jungle to get to them but by the time he gets up to the top there's no sign of a hut whatsoever and he's, he thinks he's had some kind of hallucination but there's an interesting um, side note to this and I presume this is from the editor so this is from Brian now the fact that Brian Fawcett also has supernatural beliefs uh, you know maybe that build on his father's is of note and will come into its own I think in the fourth and final episode but this is what he says perhaps the clue lies in the fact that he was thinking of nothing in particular at the time the mind not otherwise occupied was able to tune into the wavelength of a thought a memory which registered itself on the senses as definitely as an actual vision after all, what we call sight is the interpretation our brain puts on a message from the organs of vision. And if the message is relayed to the same place from another sense, the result might be to give the impression of seeing something not actually there. Many ghost stories might be explained thus. Indeed, Brian. And many ghost stories indeed. So I like that. It's just a little... Again, don't forget that this book is being written with a lot of that stuff taken out. The... The, you know, uh, Brian is, is deliberately editing this most of the time, and, and we know this from other sources, which I'll get to in the fourth episode, but he wants this book to de-emphasize the mystical stuff, and he wants it to be mostly a straight retelling of the life of an explorer. Now, he, there's no getting away from the fact that, you know, there's Lost Cities and Atlantis and stuff, but he's doing his best to present that as it's, you know, it's just history that's not accepted by the mainstream. We don't... And, and he... He can't help himself sometimes because he is something of a mystic, but he's trying, yeah, he's trying to de-emphasize that stuff as far as I can tell. And then we get a chapter called In the Dawn, in, in which Fawcett kind of starts by giving a geological history of South America, you know, to, to the degree in which it was known at the time. But then he drifts into his ideas about Atlantis and different groups of people um, washing up on the shores of South America and populating it and there's a lot of what you might consider diffusionism here um, and so he says this it is not too much to infer that in the Pacific a great continent or group of large islands was breaking up contemporaneously with the changes building the Americas into their present masses and so while we've mentioned Atlantis several times already you also have the idea of the the continent of Mu which is a similar story um, though it's often stated to have been in the Pacific rather than the Atlantic. Fawcett writes, Mexican tradition tells us that in the remote past there came to Cholula 
from the East a Toltec people who became the great and prosperous nation responsible for the construction of the Cyclopean architecture preceding that of the Aztecs. These Toltecs may have had another name. There were, for instance, the Olmecs and Zycalancas, who claimed a great antiquity and were said to have been the destroyers of the last of the giants. For the sake of simplicity, I call them Toltecs. Fawcett's imaginary history of the, the population of South America is fairly complex and involves different waves of people coming at different times and in, uh, in line with his worldview. You know, it's very race-based, it's very blood-based, it's very much like you are from this group of people, therefore you have these traits and they are kind of immutable. And, you know, he's obsessed with how separate they are versus how pure they are versus how mixed up they are and what that means for their different societies. But to, to cut a long story short, he has this group of people who he calls Toltec and he seems to be positioning them as the progenitors of kind of high, what he would call high civilization in South America. He writes, All these Toltec peoples were delicately featured, of a light copper colour, blue-eyed, probably with auburn hair, and were accustomed to wear loose white habits or coloured robes of fine texture. Even today, the glint of henna can be seen in the black hair of the copper-coloured tribes of South America, in spite of the mixture of blood, as is the case of the Maxubis, and I have seen members of these tribes with blue eyes and pure auburn hair, although they have had no contact with any fair-haired modern peoples, or even with the dark-haired Spanish and Portuguese. Autochthonies, the Toltec were superior beings. They constructed great cities and huge temples to the sun. They used papyrus and metal implements, and were accomplished in civilized arts undreamt of by the inferior races. So, if it felt like I was making a lot of emphasis in the last episode on the, you know, the kind of mystical lost white tribes that Fawcett mentions often in the book, you know, don't forget that that, that idea has tremendous, it's, it's very loaded, it has tremendous meaning for people like Fawcett. It's not just, oh, interesting, we have a group of people who seem different, you know, from what we would expect living here. It's, it's much more important than that, you know, for him to find people with, you know, seemingly evidence of, you know, a, a European or a Mediterranean lineage or heritage, you know, means a whole lot to him. It means, oh, this shows that people came and set from there to here and set up their civilization. And this is all, of course, Victorian style hyperdiffusionism. And, you know, those of you familiar with ancient alien stuff will recognize that all the same ideas have been recycled for that, you know, in the later on in the 20th century. Among all ancient peoples, education was mainly confined to the priests who belonged to the ruling caste or were intimately associated with it. They were custodians of the records and traditions. A calamity that shook the whole world and raised to the ground ancient America's mighty stone cities in all probability wiped out the priesthood as well as masses of the lay population. Many centuries must have passed before Reconstruction produced anything like another advanced civilization. Trade must have ceased, for there is a tradition that the Atlantic Ocean was deemed unnavigable owing to the violence of its storms, and this not on the American side, but on the European. The Pacific was probably the same. So, broadly in line with the classic kind of Atlantis trope, you have a disaster, the home continent is lost or destroyed, and eventually, you know, communication with the other colonies and with the mother colony are all cut off. Fawcett posits that various groups of sort of refugees from this mystery island are then scattered throughout South America in their cities, and that they eventually lose connection with one another and that the truth behind, you know, their origin is lost or becomes shrouded in myth. 
Uh, and as usual, he, he's obsessed with how they look and how you can tell that they came from, you know, some sort of pseudo fake Greek culture, which is what I think he has in mind, basically. Um, you can tell that that's where they came from because of how they look. He says, Extant records, dating from the time of the conquest, refer to the appearance of these people. Physically, they were a fine race, differing little from the Mexicans, Moiscas, and Peruvians. Descent from a white race was a tradition they all preserved. He describes some groups as being fair-complexioned and bearded, their manners were elegant and refined, and their women are said to have been fair as the English, with golden, white, or auburn hair. They are recorded as having delicate features of great beauty, small feet and hands, blue eyes, and fine, smooth hair. And so, in line with kind of old-fashioned racist thinking, anyone who has their kind of preferred group of people from history also has their demonized group of people from history, and I'm going to have to hold my nose a bit for this one as it gets into some bad stuff, but Fawcett is presuming that not only were there, like, you know, this nice, fine, well-shaped and, you know, intellectual group of people in the history of South America, there were also the bad, scary people who, if, if you can guess what colour they were, give yourself a cookie. He says, At the time of the Great Cataclysm, the Brazilian island was inhabited by an autochthonous race of Negroid troglodytes, dark-skinned if not black, hairy, brutal and cannibalistic. Remnants of these people still exist in remote parts of the interior and are greatly dreaded. They have been known to the Spanish as the cabaludos, or hairy people, and to the Portuguese as morcegos, or bats, from their custom of hiding during the day and hunting by night. The Indians on the fringes of civilization call them the tattoos, or armadillos, from their way of burrowing into the ground. The Morsegos have a very acute sense of smell, enabling them to hunt down men and animals with the greatest f facility, and it may well be that this is responsible for the seemingly telepathic knowledge of a stranger's presence, a sense shared by many forest Indians. On our way to Z, we shall have to pass through the territory of these people, and I shall welcome the opportunity of studying them. So... Let me just first say, yes, Fawcett believed that these people were still extant uh, at the time he was exploring, and he fully expected to bump into them at some point. Uh, right, okay, so there's a lot going on here. Um, aside from your standard Victorian idea of, you know, people you don't like are, you know, ecolo or not ecologically, are, are <laughs> evolutionarily less developed, which is um, disturbing but pretty common You've got some other things at play here. So I've been reading recently a paper called Goblin-like Fantastic, Little People and Deep Time at the Fin de Siecle, which is by Emily Fergus. This is from 2019. And it's about the figure of the, the, the goblin or the little person in, in Victorian fantastic fiction. So as you can imagine, there's a lot about Arthur Mack in there. And there's a, the short story called Paddinghurst Barrow, which I think is from 1892. That's by Grant Allen. And he's kind of forgotten today, but he was very influential on H.G. Wells. Wells actually mentions him by name in The Time Machine, when, which, of course, as, you, as you'll probably know, has you know a good race of people, so to speak, and a bad race of people. And the bad race of people are short, hairy, kind of ape-like. They're supposed to be this kind of evolutionary throwback or a re regression, perhaps. And... Um, Fergus writes in this paper about how the, the figure of the, the Victorian dwarf, so to speak, is, 
you know, supposed to make you think of regression of, of an evolutionary backstep or regression of some sort. And interesting how often this shows up in all different places. You've got Mackin, you've got H.G. Wells, you've got Paddinghurst Barrow, you've got Morlocks in, in Time Machine, uh, you've got the Turanian Dwarfs in kind of like, you know, 19th century pseudo-ethnology. Um, and you've got the the Daros, the evil robots in in who live under in in the Shaver mystery who live underground, and I I don't think they're like short and hairy, but they're still you know you've got the good guys and the bad guys. The bad guys live under the ground. They're subterranean. They're scary. They are, um, you know, unhuman in some way. No man's land. That short story by John Buchan. That's another good example of this trope with the sort of evolutionary throwback. Little hairy people living out in the wilds and. Oh, I almost missed an opportunity to make a Lost World reference. I'm going to throw the Lost World Maple White Land ape men in there. I, I don't think off offhand that they're referred to as being short or dwarfish, but in every other respect, they, they represent the evolutionary other, the, the regressive, you know, pre proto-human sort of other, which is, is what's going on here, I think. And like whether he knows it or not, Fawcett is kind of drinking from this well, with his his conception of two groups of people, one of whom are short, hairy, scary, and live under the ground, so tying together a lot of things there. He's he's wading in deep waters, and he's dealing with archetypes that are doing a lot of heavy lifting at this time. And just to add to the litany of strange ideas that Fawcett is playing with here, he very briefly wonders whether the whiteness that he associates with some of these groups of people might be due to some kind of unrecorded pre-Columbian contact that is some group of people making its way from the old world to the new world before Columbus. And the ones he specifies are maybe it was Eric the Red, which ties into the sort of you know, ideas about Vikings coming over and, and the Viking sagas, or the legendary migration of Madoc, who, of course, was a, a supposed Welsh, or he was a Welsh chieftain who supposedly came over. And I have a book somewhere written by Gruff Rees of the Welsh band The Super Furry Animals. It's called American Interior and is all about that, that story and how it came to be uh, and ideas about Welsh-descended white tribes in, in North America, as I recall. So... Yeah, again, he's tipping on ideas that I've seen uh, in other places. And now, dear listener, I have to play a bit of a trick on you in the realms of time and space, because when I was recording this, I accidentally skipped a few chapters when I got excited about those cryptozoology stories. In the last episode, I accidentally skipped ahead a little bit, and there is some stuff that I want to talk about, so we're going to cast our mind back to Fawcett's explorations prior to the First World War, because I could try and do this chronologically in the editing, but it's more complex than you might think, and it's going to take me longer, and I will end up having to re-record stuff so it makes sense. But... Let's cast our mind back. So earlier, on one of his earlier explorations, prior to the war, we get our kind of main section where he makes a connection to the Lost World. So obviously that's exciting to me. Uh, here's what he says. Above us towered the Ricardo Franco hills, flat-topped and mysterious, their flanks scarred by deep quedibras. Time and the foot of man had not touched those summits. They stood like a lost world, forested to their tops, and the imagination could picture the last vestiges there of an age long vanished. 
Isolated from the battle with changing conditions, monsters from the dawn of man's existence might still roam those heights unchallenged, imprisoned and protected by unscalable cliffs. So thought Conan Doyle when later in London I spoke of these hills and showed photographs of them. He mentioned an idea for a novel on Central South America and asked for information which I told him I should be glad to supply. The fruit of it was his Lost World in 1912, appearing as a serial in the Strand magazine and subsequently in the form of a book that achieved widespread popularity. Now, as with the Percy Fawcett, H.R. Haggard connection, I'm doing my best to find out whether there was any confirmation on the other side of this relationship, like from Arthur Conan Doyle, to show indeed that Arthur Conan Doyle did meet Fawcett, or at least attend a lecture by him. Uh, you will see that written just about everywhere where people are recounting this tale, um, but again, I'm always a tiny bit wary with Fawcett and trying to back these things up if I can. I've scoured various biographies of Conan Doyle, and almost inevitably, when they do mention this, the it turns out that their source is Exploration Fawcett. So I think people have been retelling this and believing this at least since the 50s, and this connection between Doyle, Fawcett, and The Lost World. And almost always the, the source is Fawcett himself and the book Exploration Fawcett. I, I've no reason to disbelieve it, I'm just looking for some more evidence. So recently I made a trip up to Dublin and I was I got to hang out with Lisa, who was on our episode about T.C. Lethbridge, which you should absolutely go back and listen to if you haven't already. And we had a, we had lunch and hit up some bookshops. I was delighted to see... The famous chapters bookshop is back up and running and looking looking better than ever, to be honest. That's been an important place to me since I was a kid. So I was lucky enough to pick up a copy of uh, Andrew Lysett's Conan Doyle, The Man Who Created Sherlock Holmes. This is from 2007. I was basically like per perusing through every biography I could find. And maybe somebody out there knows better than me. But this is what Andrew Lysett says. Arthur was in no hurry to put pen to paper. He needed more background detail. One of his contacts was Percy Fawcett, who, after a military career specialising in undercover missions, had been heading the Bolivian Boundary Commission, mapping the Amazon basin between Brazil and Bolivia. When Fawcett gave a talk to the Royal Geographical Society on the 13th of February 1911, he found Arthur particularly interested in his description of the flat-topped Ricardo Franco Hills in the Mato Grosso. He mentioned an idea for a novel on Central South America and asked for information, which I told him I should be glad to supply. Right, so you can you, you should recognise at least some of that text which shows that Andrew Lysett is pulling at least some of the story from Exploration Fawcett, as most people are when they talk about this connection. However, he does add one detail, which is the date. So supposedly Doyle sees Fawcett talking at the RGS on the 13th of February 1911. That date, as we've just heard, is not from Exploration Fawcett, so he's getting it from somewhere else. Where is he getting it from? I don't know, because in the notes at the back for this chapter, unless I'm an idiot, as far as I can tell, it doesn't say. However, there is some good information in here about the, the genesis of The Lost World, and it also says this. The exact location was imprecise from the expedition's itinerary. It could have been either Fawcett's Ricardo Franco Hills in western Brazil, or Mount Roraima in southern Brazil. And then in the notes at the back, it says Mount Roraima was associated with botanist Everard M. Thurn and in the annotated Lost World by Roy Pilot and Alvin Roden, which I would love to have but is out of print and unavailable for sensible prices anywhere. If anybody can help, please do reach out. Um, but they say in that book that Arthur Conan Doyle attended a lecture by this 
Imthern, Everard Imthern, and probably learned about Mount Roraima from this person. So if he didn't get it from Fawcett, he got it from this person. Oh, that's what I that's what I've got for now. Except no, there's more. So I recently got an edition of The Lost World from 1998. This is the Oxford World Classics with introduction and notes by Ian Duncan. And this is tremendous. I honestly, I wish I'd got this ages ago. It's pretty old. And I'm sure most people who are enthusiasts have got this already. Um, it's the one with the magic cover. Uh, I think it's the Harry Roundtree one of the guys walking across the log bridge from the pinnacle to the uh, plateau of Maple White Land. But um, one of the footnotes, the footnotes for this are brilliant, one of the footnotes about the exact location where the expedition goes, it mentions Fawcett and it mentions that Fawcett might have given Doyle geographical hints for the book and that he went to the Ricardo Franco Hills. But it also uh, says a little bit about the Everard in Thurn and actually quotes this person Everard and it's, it's the quote is pretty astonishing it says on the supposition that the summit is really inaccessible not only to men but to all unwinged animals there are those who hold that on this tableland cut off as this must be thus from all communication with the rest of the world very possibly animal forms of, of a primitive type exist which have undergone no modification under the influence of new coming forms since the plane was first isolated in mid-air Everard F. Imthern, Among the Indians of Guyana, 1883. So that's pretty dang interesting, folks. So, I mean, Fawcett aside, this shows that Thurn, you know, as early as the 1880s, was telling, or at least conjecturing, this idea that maybe these flat-topped uh, hills, in, in his case it's Mount Roraima, uh, might have had ancient life forms on them. So this idea goes back a lot earlier than the time when Doyle is using it which uh, is fascinating. And that's enough about The Lost World for now. Anyway, you're safe for a little while. We're going to get back to our boy Percy. So he's talking about, like, it, it, I'm trying to judge, you know, how important he is, what a big deal he is, how connected he is. And, you know, he's this RGS star. He's this kind of upper class or sort of English gentleman. I know he's, his family is known for squandering away their their riches and stuff but like he, he he talks about meeting the president of bolivia he talks about meeting diplomats in every country he goes to but then in the very next paragraph he talks about you know he's how how poor his career prospects really are and he he says that um the war office wouldn't keep him on for any more years they say that he had he was becoming disillusioned with the army and that it was no profession for a poor man there was no way to get ahead anyone who had initiative um, would you know would provoke hostility from his superiors and that if again it's all this old-fashioned class system stuff if you're not well connected then people don't really want to help you out he says promotion was slow and he said that in 20 years spent mostly in the tropics tropics he was making a wage less than that of a curate uh, only to run the risk of being shelved as a major and then when he retires officially from the army and the war office he gets his pension cut down so from here on out he's on to kind of independent expeditions and has to get funding from other sources so just always interesting to to know like these guys who are so famous to, for, to us now and we think that they were these you know larger than life characters but they, they were as constrained by um, the economics of their time as we are today I find that kind of uh, I, I like to think about it for some reason shortly after this uh, Fawcett is again talking about his wanderings in the jungle and as usual he makes it feel like a very busy place or comparatively busy 
uh, and he's always meeting these kind of down and out people from Europe and English and and German and French travelers and he he talks about the idea of quote unquote going native and he's he's quite sympathetic towards it uh, spe- speaking specifically about the English he says their standing in the community is considerable. They live easily and in a fair degree of comfort, and there are few worries to distract them. Their existence provides sure escape from the lurking fear of that heritage of a worn-out financial system unemployment. I believe the attraction is more in this than in anything else. The English peel off the unessentials of modernity very easily. They go native more readily than any Europeans except the Italians, and the more refined their upbringing, the quicker the change comes about. There is no disgrace in it. On the contrary, in my opinion, it shows a creditable regard for the real things of life at the expense of the artificial. Now, while there's a touch of the old uh, noble savage trope happening here, for sure, uh, something about this reminded me of the book The Lost White Tribe by Michael Robinson. So I went searching for the quote that this put me in mind of, and it's, it's to do with Tarzan and Edgar Rice Burroughs and the whole, the whole trope in kind of adventure fiction at this time of, you know, the white guy who goes who goes native, the white person who is put into the alien other tropical place and has all of the kind of accoutrements of civilization stripped away from him. This is what Robinson says about this scenario. For some authors, like Edgar Rice Burroughs, confrontation with the wilds of nature offered an important corrective to the emasculating influences of the industrial world. For Burroughs and other adventure writers, stripping away this civilization revealed the core racial character, as much as their white gone native novels demonstrated the benefit of casting off civilization for a life in the wild. Great book, by the way. Uh, I heartily recommend it. And I must say it has influenced a lot of my thinking on stuff like this. And when I note bits in the writing of Fawcett about, you know, his obsessive search for like white tribes and his obsessive kind of attempt to deconstruct their kind of racial characteristics, a lot of it is is this book that I'm thinking of. So highly recommend it. Interesting to note also that the first Tarzan novel comes out in 1912, which is almost where we're at in the Fawcett timeline. So these things are happening kind of round and about the same time as each other. So in 1911, which is the expedition that Fawcett goes on that he then talks about in London when he comes back in in that year and and presumably saw Arthur Conan Doyle, um, traveling with him are... Henry Coston, who's kind of his, his long-time partner, the guy who he kind of respects the most and who sticks along for the most expeditions with him, another fellow named Henry Manley, and then a guy by the name of James Murray. Now, you might remember this from the film the, of the of the David Grand book because both the book and the film make a big deal out of this. It's one of the major subplots, and this is, you, you remember this as he's the uh, Antarctic explorer who comes along and he kind of insists insists on being inserted into the expedition because... He's portrayed as being very self-important and Fawcett tells him, no, just because you're good at Antarctic exploration doesn't mean that you know anything about being in, in the jungle. And he comes along anyway and he can't hack it, he can't manage it and he starts to weigh down the whole expedition. And it's 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 an interesting subplot in the film, but actually Fawcett says very little about this. I think because they they obviously publicly quarreled about this and there there was some bad blood and there was like legal threats and stuff, so... Fawcett doesn't even mention his name, he just calls him The Biologist, with a capital B. He says this, By this time, The Biologist, he was a European by the way, was suffering badly from his sores and from a lack of change of clothes, for those he possessed were stinking. He was beginning to realise how foolish he had been to throw away all but immediate necessities in his pack, and became increasingly morose and frightened. 
the Akokas had temporarily relieved him of the torture of the Satutus, but he objected to their methods of extracting these pests, and when a new crop of sores began to appear, preferred to use his own remedy, corrosive sublimate. As a result, the grubs died inside his skin and left ugly, festering wounds. The bad smell of these and his reeking clothes combined to make him a most unsavoury object, and as we had thunderstorms every day with deluges of rain, he grew worse instead of better. Uh, eventually, James Murray departs from the expedition under acrimonious circumstances. They go out of their way to get him to, back to safety and to civilization. They don't really expect to ever see him again, as they suspect that he's probably going to die. But he survives and makes it back to London and starts bitching about Fawcett in the press. And uh, you probably remember the rest of it from previous episodes, but go back and take a listen um, if you haven't. Anyway, like I said, much less of this in the book than there is in Grant's book or in the film. At about this point, Fawcett starts kind of mentioning more and more frequently that he's coming across ideas about lost cities in the places he's travelling through. Um, he talks about uh, groups of people he meets who have traditions of, su quote, superior Indian tribes, uh, traditions of a once great civilization, and of a race who may have sired the Incas. There's that hyperdiffusionist uh, idea again. He talks about uh, mysterious gigantic remains that the invading Incas found and adopted as their own. And, and these stories tend to, from about two-thirds of the way through the book, these stories start to pop up again and again and again. A faucet is linking different things. He's linking these traditions he hears from indigenous people. He's linking stories he hears from the uh, the years of the the early years of the invasions of the Spanish and the Portuguese. He's talking about uh, legends of lost mines, like the lost mines of Morabeca, and lots of other different kinds of things that he's bringing in together. Not to mention that cross Atlantic stuff that we mentioned earlier. Anyway, he does a bit of repetition here in a chapter called The Turn of the Road uh, about cryptozoology. I don't want to say too much about this but because he's kind of repeating stuff from earlier chapters. But number one, the, the drawing on the front of this, of this chapter is awesome uh, and it is like two explorers in Stetson hats in the bush looking at these giant three-toed dinosaur footprints reminds me of sure enough something from the last world so my hat goes off to my, my Stetson goes off to Brian Fawcett in this one and uh, just if you haven't ever seen pictures of him Percy Fawcett always wore a Stetson on his expeditions usually in the pictures none of them are wearing the kind of stereotypical pith helmet they they went for Stetsons instead um so he says he starts talking about mysterious animals again repeating some of what he said earlier but just out of interest and for the sake of completion, this is what it is. In the forest were various beasts still unfamiliar to zoologists, such as the Mitla, which I have seen twice, a black dog-like cat about the size of a foxhound. There were snakes and insects yet unknown to scientists, and in the forest of the Medidi, some mysterious and enormous beast has frequently been disturbed in the swamps, possibly a primeval monster like those reported in other parts of the continent. Certainly, tracks have been found belonging to no known animal. Huge tracks, far greater than could have been made by any species we know. The anaconda attains greater dimensions there than is generally admitted, but if reports from reputable travellers are persistently disbelieved, there is no way of proving it. And if you want to hear more about Fawcett and giant snakes, or Fawcett writing to newspapers about extant giant dinosaur sauropods, uh, go back to episode 2 of this miniseries. And that concludes my backtracking segment, so we are now going to whiz ourselves forward in time back, ironically, to Fawcett's post-war expeditions. <laughs> and 
And so while traveling in, in Chile, Fawcett comes across uh, another tradition of a lost city called the City of the Caesars, uh, supposedly inhabited by a cultured people of a high order and hidden in a secret valley. And he says that while in the north of Chile, he folks tell him that the secret valley is somewhere down in the south. But when he's in the south, he's told that the valley is somewhere in the north and that the buildings there are roofed with gold. The inhabitants lead an existence of blissful isolation and have an enlightened king and that there is something magical about the place that makes it visible only to a few certain people from the outside and invisible to everybody else. And of course, he starts talking about how he wonders whether or not this is the last city of the Bander Banderas. These are the people who found the last city while searching for the lost mines of Morabeka that we talked about a long time ago at the beginning of this book. And he goes into the, some details about these folks. He says that they, they their era lasts between 1561 and about 1700, and that their principal function was to capture Indians for the slave markets. And I just mention this because I've referred to them in past episodes as being kind of like sort of conquistador type people and that's just that was just me being careless with words they weren't really of course and um the fact that his main story takes place in the mid 1700s should tip knowledgeable listeners off that of course that's quite a bit later than the usual conquistador timeline um, and and that these guys were a little bit different or, or were at least you know traveling around south america in a different time and for slightly different reasons Fawcett also here engages in some of the same kind of slippery use of language that later ancient aliens people would use and various other kinds of alt history people. Um, in particular, he talks about the name of the Amazon and he says that Solimos was the native name of the Amazon. Rather, I should say this is not Fawcett, this is his son Brian Fawcett because this is happening in one of the notes, but kind of matches with some of the false's own thinking but it says that or it claims that this is the same as the name solomon or Suleiman, and that it is suggestive of the tradition that the ships of king solomon of tyre made voyages every three years to a secret destination and then he makes the the rather outrageous claim that semitic names are rather common in the amazon valley and many of the characters in known rock inscriptions uh, have more than a little similarity to the Phoenicians. So again, we have this like secret pre-Columbian trade or pre-Columbian uh, contact idea going on. Finally, Fawcett himself, Percy Fawcett, the father, um, says this. The existence of the old cities, I do not for a moment doubt. How could I? I myself have seen a portion of one of them, and that is why I observed that it was imperative for me to go again. The remains seem to be those of an outpost of one of the bigger cities, which I am convinced is to be found if a properly organised search is to be carried out. Unfortunately, I cannot induce scientific men to accept even the supposition that there are traces of an old civilization in Brazil. One thing is certain, between the outer world and the secrets of ancient South America, a veil has descended, and the explorer who seeks to penetrate this veil must be prepared to face hardships and dangers that will tax his endurance to the utmost. There has been disillusionment too. After the Ganguji expedition, I doubted for a time the existence of the old cities, and then came the sight of remains that proved the truth of at least part of the accounts. It still remains a possibility that Zed, my chief objective, with its remnant of inhabitants, may turn out to be none other than the forest city found by the Bandera of 1753. 
It is not on the Zingu River or in the Mato Grasso. If we ever reach it, we may be delayed there for a considerable time. Our route will be from Dead Horse Camp, 11 degrees 43 minutes south and 54 degrees 35 minutes west, where my horse died in 1921. So Dead Horse Camp is going to become important in our final episode when we talk about where Fawcett actually went versus where he claimed to have gone. Um, having said that, uh, the editor Brian pipes in here to say that this is the route my father set out to follow in 1925. Experts in Brazil maintain it is impossible to do it, and in so much as he never returned, they may be right. Uh, he goes on to say that the place where he, uh, where Percy believed Zed to be, um, has been flown over by domestic airlines in more recent years. Nobody has ever seen any evidence of a lost city there, and moreover, this part of the country is not unknown and I can hardly believe it was unexplored at the time he wrote. Now this must be hard for Brian to, to write but it, at least he's, he's being honest here. He's saying that you know the, the practical facts of the area is that it wasn't it isn't that remote now and it wasn't even that remote then. You know it, it might have been a, a little inhabited place but there were people there. It was known. You know you're not going to hide something of the size of um, a kind, the kind of city that Fawcett seems to have been hoping for and then rather sadly he says i have personally investigated the bearings he gives us for the 1753 city and can state authoritatively that it is not their editor and finally even even more finally i promise Fawcett says i Fawcett himself says i have talked with a frenchman who for some years occupied himself with tracking down the legendary silver mines associated indirectly with the deserted city he claims to have been all over the region I propose visiting and states that it is populated by civilized settlers wherever there is water, that there is no real forest in that area and that no ruins can possibly exist there. He asserts that he discovered a peculiar weather-worn formation of sandstone which from the distance looked very much like old ruins and that this is what the Banderantes of 1753 actually saw inventing the rest of their tale in the fashion of those days. Now, after this, Fawcett says, well, actually, I didn't believe what this, what this French guy said. He was a bit of a drunk anyway, and who, who trusts the French, you know? Um, but uh, you can tell that the doubt is, is there. And even him about to go into the forest for the very last time, uh, you know, in 1925, just before that, he's writing these words in Devon and imagining and planning for that trip and kind of admitting that it's a long shot. It's a terribly long shot. And so... We, as we come to the conclusion of this book, we have to wonder, did he think there were other reasons for going in there? Uh, was he hoping maybe for something other than just a physical lost archaeological site? Was he hoping that there would be something more, something more spiritual? Um, that is what we're going to find out in our final episode. In the last chapter, which has the rather evocative name, The New Prester John, uh, Brian Fawcett talks about how his father's disappearance becomes this famous mystery and how lots of different kind of people who have been have been called the Fawcett freaks or the Fawcett maniacs over the years and perhaps I've become one of these myself. And he talks about how these various numbers of these people disappeared into the jungles looking for Fawcett and some of them never came back. Some of them came back with stories saying that they met Fawcett or they met Fawcett's son or anyone else connected to the story. And eventually Brian came to disbelieve all of their cases. I'm not going to go into it because David Grant does a fairly nice job of 
summing this up in his book, and we talked about it back in the first episode. But basically, Brian spends quite a few years exploring the jungles himself, flying over it, um, and listening to these people's crazy stories, and eventually satisfying himself that, you know, they're not going to find out what happened to his father. They're extremely unlikely to, at least. And that, you know, these people are telling tall tales about it, and he's he's not very inclined to believe any of them. His mother, of course... Uh, went on to quite a different take on this situation and led quite a different had had a different end to her life which we'll find out about in the next episode but i think i'll say that brian concludes his description of the years following his father's disappearance with this there is yet another possibility they may have managed to penetrate the barrier of savage tribes and reached their objective if that were so and if the tradition is true that the last remnants of the ancient race had indeed protected their sanctuary by ringing themselves round with fierce savages, what chance would there be of returning, thus breaking the age-long secrecy so faithfully preserved? And so we come at long last to the end of the 1953 book Exploration Fawcett. Okay, folks, I promised you that I would do my initial front-loading stuff at the end, and here it is, and I have some good stuff. So first and foremost, you can support the show, as always, over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. And as always, that coffee money, it does go towards real coffee. Some of it does. I'm I'm a coffee person. Uh, A lot of it goes towards books. Uh, For example, the aforementioned Arthur Conan Doyle biography that I talked about those those things cost a bit of money so i want to thank nick gully who bought some coffees for me this week and said uh, always a wonderful exploration of humanity at the edges of understanding very poetic and i also want to thank horace alden smith for buying coffee uh, and he says loved the hr haggard episode it is amusing that ambrose bierce savaged the astronomy errors in the first edition of king solomon's minds in his the moon in letters Beer seems to be mostly right, although others had noticed the problems earlier. Uh, thanks, Horace. I, I do like Haggard, but I also like Ambrose Bierce, bitter Bierce to his friends, as he was called for his kind of uh, biting and sarcastic wit. And this is a little weird fiction factoid that I didn't know about. Um, as much of a fan of Haggard as I am, I've always hated the trope of, you know, white dudes go to somewhere exotic and the locals think that they're gods because of something minor that happens like, you know, the predicting the astronomical events thing that we see that I think Horace is referring to there. So, interesting story. I also want to say, what else, what other things happened this week? I'm just pulling up something on the computer or on my phone here. Um, uh, I want to thank Jeb Card, who got in touch, was listening to our Neanderthal episode, the one about the 13th Warrior. Uh, You should know his work. I think the podcast in research of should be required listening so i'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with his work and he just said um thinking about neanderthals uh, are you aware of this and he sent on something called a book called them and us by a fellow called danny vendramini who seems to write out of australia and this is a really out there interpretation of human evolution in which he thinks that neanderthals are like this kind of horrific terrifying super predator and that their predation upon us and their weirdly their sexual violence against us um, informed homo sapiens evolution over time it's worth look i'll put a link because it's worth looking at if for no other reason than his rather extraordinary 
nightmarish recreation of what he thinks Neanderthals look like. And some of this put me in mind of the work of some of the uh, Soviet Bigfoot researchers who were talked about recently over at the Workers' Cauldron. And um, some of their strange ideas about human evolution are a little bit like this as well. And it goes on to say that, you know, all of humanity's boogeymen, so to speak, all the creatures of the night that we have feared over generations are like actually folk memories of, you know, our fear of Neanderthals and how all the monsters we have ever imagined have scary eyes like Neanderthals had. And he has a rather hilarious list of pop culture monsters, which he kind of tries to put into this category. So, no, I had not known about this. It's pretty wild. Now, the other things I want to talk about here are Lost World related. Hooray! They all come from my recent rereading of this Ian Duncan edition of The Lost World from 1998. So, firstly, he disposes very quickly with the Arthur Conan Doyle supposed sighting of a, an ichthyosaur while on his honeymoon in Greece. Um, Ian Duncan just basically says, yep, he saw a porpoise and for some reason went around telling people it was an ichthyosaur. I've not seen this interpretation anywhere else. I mean, it, it sounds likely. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that's what really happened. But I I don't know whether he's just being cynical or whether he's pulling from some other source that I'm unaware of. But yep, uh, he, he reckons it was a porpoise. No questions asked. Um, apart from this, there's some great stuff here in the notes. So if you're a Lost World devotee as I am, you may be aware of the phrase Kurapuri which is something that Doyle uses in the book. He says this is a kind of a mystical spirit of the forest that the indigenous people believe in. And in The Lost World, it turns out that their fear of this, you know, mysterious creature is actually tied up in their fear of the beasts of the Lost World, the dinosaurs that live there. And so when Doyle uses the phrase, he uses it kind of vaguely. He says, oh, it's just a, a term that the natives have for any kind of vague f thing that they fear in the woods. But in the notes here, at the back of the book, Ian Duncan says that this this is from Bates, who is a, he's name checked in the novel, and Doyle had read his book. This is, of course, Henry Walter Bates, who uh, was known for traveling in the Amazon with Alfred Russell Wallace, who's a bit a bit of a hero of mine, or at least uh, someone I've always been very interested in. Some of the stuff he did was not very heroic, but a lot of it was very interesting. So. Bates had a book called The Naturalist on the River Amazons that came out in 1863 and this is one of the sources that Doyle had. In fact, he seems to have cribbed from it for his descriptions of what the jungle looked like in the book. Um, anyway, so this is where he got the idea of the Kurapuri and this is how Bates describes it. Now, pay attention. With the natives, it is always the Kurapira, the wild man or spirit of the forest, which produces all noises they are unable to explain. For myths are the rude theories which mankind, in the infancy of knowledge, invent to explain natural phenomena. The Kurupira is a mysterious being whose attributes are uncertain, for they vary according to locality. Sometimes he is described as a kind of orangutan, being covered with long, shaggy hair and living in trees. At others, he is said to have cloven feet and a bright red face. He has a wife and children and sometimes comes down to the Rokas to steal the Mandayoka. Okay, so obviously with this, Doyle decided to go in the direction of, hey, let's focus on the fact that, you know, this thing is kind of vague and people describe it differently. Therefore, it can fit in with my idea about the dinosaurs. That's cool. But I have to think that if somebody reading this 
uh, in the mid 20th century or later came across it, they would be inclined to say, oh, this could be evidence for a Bigfoot type relic hominoid of some sort living in the jungles of South America. Uh, just how interesting how these two worlds have crossed yet again, uh, like ships in the night almost. Doyle could have taken it in that direction. And while there are ape-like beings in the Lost World, of course, he gives no indication that uh, those specifically are what is being referred to by the Kurupuri. In fact, he never mentions these, this bit about it being an ape-like being whatsoever. And aside from this, there's some fun stuff in the notes tying the Lost World to earlier examples of fantastic adventure fiction, which which I quite enjoyed. Um, so I suppose one which I'll say is that there's a connection to Jules Verne's journey to the centre of the earth, despite, the, or, you know, aside from the obvious fact that that's like one of the earliest novels to have prehistoric animals still alive in an adventure story. And Doyle is clearly aware of it, but there's something more more obvious than that. So the, the lake on The Lost World is named Lake Gladys by Malone, the, the young hero, in, in honour of his lady love back in London. And um, Professor Challenger says something to him like, uh, well, you know, Lake let Lake Gladys, let it, let it be. And actually, this is a this is an interpretation of what happens in Fern's book, where they're in the center of the earth on the Lidenbrock Sea, and the young hero wants to name it after his lady love, and he or, and he decides to call the place where they land Port Gretchen after his his lady friend. And Professor Lidenbrock says, well then, Port Gretchen, let it be. So a clear nod by Doyle there to this earlier influential work of science fiction. Uh, not only that, but in a nod to one of his more near contemporaries, H.R. Haggard, who we're always a fan of here at The Cabin. Um, so you've probably heard me say many times that the very beginning of The Lost World opens with Doyle saying, I have wrought my simple plan if I give one hour of joy to the boy who's half a man or the man who's half a boy. And Ian Duncan says, well, compare this to the dedication at the beginning of King Solomon's Mines to all the big and little boys who read it. And while it's not exactly, you know, a discovery to say that this sort of literature was thought of as being juvenile and for boys in particular, um, I think that's a pretty clear nod to the progenitor of the whole Last Race genre. And I found that rather interesting. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up there, folks. Hopefully you've enjoyed this. Uh, a lot of Lost World in my faucet this week, but the connections are various and manifold. As always, you can say hi over at Twitter, where I am extremely polite. <laughs> I am at Strange Ireland, and over on Instagram, you can see my nature pics or pictures of hikes and stuff that I like to do, as well as promotional podcast stuff. That is where I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And as always, until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.